Vooral droog bij 11 graden. Morgen zijn er zonnige perioden met in het westen een enkele bui. En de temperaturen liggen morgen tussen de 17 en 20 graden. Tot zover het radionieuws. U luistert naar RTV Maastricht.
Hallo iedereen en welkom naar Studentenradio Maastricht. Ik ben Magiel de Groot en vandaag ben ik de enigste in de studio voor Studentenradio Maastricht. Het is een drukke tijd van het jaar, dus uh, vandaag doe ik een solo show over de Beatles en tien liedjes van verschillende fases van hun carrière. Uh, for the English speakers out there, hello, my name is Magiel de Groot and welcome to the 10th episode of Student Radio Maastricht. Uh, like I just mentioned in Dutch, today is, uh, or this time of year rather, is a busy time of year. So I'm uh, the only representative of student radio today. And as such, I'm going to be covering a bit of a specialty of mine, the Beatles. So we're going to look at 10 songs from different phases in their careers and just talk a little bit about um, about what we see in terms of changes and things like that. So let's just start with a brief overview of who the Beatles are. Today they're considered one of the most uh, one of the greatest bands of all time and they're credited as pioneers in pop culture, rock and roll and uh, several other genres as well which might be surprising like heavy metal and um, psychedelic rock. But before they were put on this cultural pedestal, obviously there was a whole process of growth and practice really that led there. So these are the things we're going to be looking at today. The four members of the band are John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison and Ringo Starr. Therefore lads from Liverpool who grew up in the post-war 50s, obviously a generation who had a lot of energy. And um, yeah, the, the core songwriting duo of the group is uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, who met in July of 1957 when they were 15 years old. Uh, George, who was a bit younger, joined a year later. And in 1962, the group was complete with Ringo joining from a rivaling band. Um, one fact that surprises a lot of people, I think, is that uh, the Beatles were only together for eight years, from 62 to 1970. But um, it's inarguable that they left a huge uh, impact on the music world, both in live music, recording techniques, and popular culture writ large. So they released 12 official studio albums, 22 singles, and a host of EPs before they broke up in 1970, although the, they had been splintering for uh, a while before that. So we're going to play a song from the early Beatles catalog where you can hear that they're wearing their influences on their sleeve. It's early rock and roll, the year is 63. And um, it, it was high energy music for post-war kids looking to dance. And um, so this is emblematic of the Beatles' early years. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of uh, guitars, uh, easy rock and roll rhythms. And you're going to hear a lot of whoops and shouts that are kind of a throwback to Little Richard and the, uh, the black rock and rollers of the American 1950s. So uh, here is I Saw Her Standing There by the Beatles. Two, three, five!
right. That was I Saw Her Standing There, written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney for the Beatles in 1963. So as I mentioned, that really captures kind of the high energy, just infectious, um, maybe optimism and flirtatiousness of the early Beatles days. And um, yeah, you hear at the end of every chorus, they're doing the woo, which is a reference, obviously, to Little Richard, like I mentioned. And um, yeah, they wrote a lot of songs like this, Lennon and McCartney. Very high energy, always about love in those early years. They didn't stray much from that subject matter. And um, this is how they got their start, the, this Lennon-McCartney songwriting core. In the beginning, Harrison was not writing at all. We'll get uh, later on into this episode, we're going to get a little bit more into George Harrison as a songwriter. And um, Ringo as well didn't contribute in the uh, early years because Lennon and McCartney were quite dominant there. Um, so these were the kind of songs that they were putting out. You might recognize I Want to Hold Your Hand, uh, She Loves You, uh, Love Me Do, Twist and Shout. There's a whole host of Beatles songs from this era that are very popular. And it's, uh, in a lot of ways, it might be their most popular phase of their career in terms of the number of people who were turning out to see them perform. So starting in 64, they uh, actually broke the United States, as it's called. And they, um, uh, they were the first British band to tour in America, which was a big deal at the time. And they were pulling in crowds that nobody had ever seen before, playing in uh, baseball stadiums, football stadiums, and things like that. So uh, it really was, they ter termed it Beatlemania, and it really was a mania. It was something that the music industry had never, had never dealt with before, um, besides maybe the likes of Elvis. But uh, this was something new. This was an international phenomenon. And um, so this Lennon-McCartney core was driving this band forward, and uh, their personalities, their infectious energy was, was only helping. And around this time, it was largely a female audience. You might be familiar with the images of screaming girls, hysteria at all of these Beatles concerts. But uh, that was also a driving factor of change in the band because I think uh, it's evident that especially Lennon and McCartney wanted to be taken more seriously as artists. So uh, we're going to get into that a little bit next um, as we talk a bit more about their touring and how they matured as a band. So the next song we're going to play is Help by the Beatles, which is written by John Lennon. And uh, this one takes a bit of a different tone from the solely optimistic and flirtatious I saw her standing there. So let's listen to Help by the Beatles. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help, when, when I was younger, so much younger than today. I never, need, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Please, please help me 
right, that was Help by the Beatles off of their 1964 album by the same title. Also, uh, they made a film also titled Help, uh, and this was the title track from that song. So obviously, as I mentioned in the early Beatles career, uh, there was a big focus on, on songs about love, and this one may be tangentially connected to love, but this is a bit of a different uh, subject matter than the Beatles would usually deal with. This is John Lennon. Uh, some have labeled it a, a cry for help, literally, as the title would suggest. But uh, it's, a, it's about the craziness of the Beatles, about being these literally 20 years old. I mean, I'm also 20 years old. I couldn't imagine being uh, on the other side of the world touring for a, for a band that's as big as they were and having that kind of pressure on their shoulders. And uh, so this was a, a Lennon-McCartney tune written primarily by Lennon. And um, so you're, you're starting to see a little bit of uh, edginess creep in and a little bit of weariness. And uh, this does actually creep in on their next album, Beatles for Sale, which unfortunately we don't have time to play a song from. But uh, yeah, there's a bit of fatigue in, in those 64 albums that begins to creep in because they were on a two album a year contract for their record label and they're touring around the world. So as you can imagine, that's a lot of strain, especially at a time when the music industry couldn't even really be called an industry, at least not nearly on the same scale as, as it is now. And uh, part of this, this whole process of this Beatles show is going to be to illustrate how um, the Beatles set a template for the music industry and, and showed uh, the, the promise of, um, of, of boy bands. Because at the time, there was even a, uh, a record label that actually rejected the Beatles because they said boy bands are on the way out anyway and uh, duets are in right now. And now it's gone down as one of the biggest uh, blunders in, in music history. But uh, yeah, that's how those things go. And uh, on that song, Help, you can really hear kind of a, a little bit of the fatigue and weariness. But uh, by this time, the 60s are really ramping up um, in terms of, of all these cultural things happen. It's the golden age of Hollywood. Um, and the hippie culture is really beginning to bloom. Um, and at the same time, the Beatles, along with this, were also maturing and, and wanting to become more serious artists. Um, and um, part, of, part of that touring experience was very much going on stage in front of screaming girls, and they were making a decent amount of money, but uh, you could see that it wasn't for them primarily about that. So after only two years of touring from 64 to 66, the Beatles never gave a public performance again. Uh, at least not a planned one. Their final public performance was in 1970, but it was on the rooftop of their studio. So yeah, remarkably short touring career, but in a way you can understand why. That must have been an incredible amount of pressure. So also around this time of help, the Beatles were introduced to uh, recreational substances by the, by the great Bob Dylan. So he showed them, uh, he had them smoke marijuana with him at some point when uh, they were in America, I believe. And uh, they started to make music more inspired by what we would call today hippie culture, things like that. So they were spending more time in the studio, being more contemplative and, and being more philosophical in their lyrical writings as well. That's something that you're going to see on the next song that we're going to play in a couple of minutes. But um, yes, I think, I think this next song is going to be a much bigger shift than the, the first couple songs that we played because... Um, by the time you get to Rubber Soul in uh, 1964, I believe, um, oh, excuse me, 1965, Rubber Soul, you're going to see that the Beatles have grown out their hair a little bit. The album cover is a little more psychedelic with the big ballooned uh, title uh, art and everything. 
And um, this is the beginning of a shift in the Beatles' career towards more mature songwriting, more mature uh, arrangement as well. As you'll see, their songs become much more delicately arranged. Their producer, George Martin, uh, the late, great George Martin, he uh, became more involved. And um, so you do begin to see a shift in the Beatles' music, and I hope that this, uh, this next song will give you a little bit of an inclination of that. Um, so yes, keep in mind, this next song is going to deal with different subject matter than uh, what we've seen before. Uh, this song, which we're going to play next, is called Norwegian Wood, and uh, it's about essentially about a, a prostitute who John Lennon has uh, an encounter with, or I suppose it's open to interpretation, but at this point that's the accepted, uh, the accepted interpretation of it. Um, which again, like I said, is very is very different from what the Beatles were doing in their first few years. So even in in the span of 1963 to 1965, the Beatles have shown this voracious appetite for evolution, both musically. You'll remember that uh, you know perfectly respectable, but nothing special guitar solo on uh, "I Saw Her Standing There," and um, they start to to up their musicianship. They start to up their sound writing. And around this time, also, George Harrison crept into the mix and started to uh, release his own songs on the album, although the majority by far were still uh, Lennon and McCartney tunes, and Ringo would get a chance to sing once in a while. But uh, yeah, Lennon and McCartney were evolving alongside each other as well and uh, really pushing each other to develop the best songs that they could. And uh, yes, it is a shame that I can only play uh, 10 songs on this hour-long show, or I would uh, be able to demonstrate a lot more of how the Beatles uh, underwent this evolution. But uh, for now, I just want to play a Norwegian wood, alternately named This Bird Has Flown. And uh, yeah, let's take a listen to that.
So that was Norwegian Wood, This Bird Has Flown, off of the Beatles' 1965 album Rubber Soul. And um, you're going to hear a, a very big difference from the earlier song Help uh, there. Those with a keen musical ear might have noticed the, uh, the sitar being played by George Harrison, which is a, uh, an Eastern instrument played uh, in India and uh, regions around that uh, area of the world, which for the time in, in 1965, well, I suppose recorded in 64 partially, um, that was unheard of for a modern-day rock and roll band to, uh, to bring a sitar into the studio and to play such a whimsical um, kind of song. So this was, this was very cutting-edge at the time, and you can hear John Lennon uh, as he's singing and his, his whimsical lyrics as well. He's really growing into, into what we associate nowadays with 60s pop and 60s rock and roll. Um, and the recording quality, obviously, at the time is getting better and better. By this time, the Beatles have the money to spend essentially endless time in, in Abbey Road Studios where they recorded because they were such a big phenomenon that uh, they essentially had free reign over the studio, could work day and night. So they had a lot, much more time to experiment um, with classical arrangements, mixing genres, and um, all, all kinds of melodies that may have seemed uncool for rock and roll artists uh, any time before that. Um, so this begun on Robber Soul, as I mentioned, you hear the sitars, things like that, but it's even expanded on even more uh, on Revolver, their album coming out the following year in 1966. So those two albums, Rubber Soul and Revolver, were all recorded around the same time but we're split up into two releases. And it's really an, a remarkable shift in, in quality of songwriting. Not that they weren't making wonderful songs before. There were some great ones we just played. But um, there's a complexity and a depth to these songs that they didn't have only a couple years earlier. And keep in mind that uh, Lennon and McCartney are 22, 23, you know, essentially university age, age kids. And... Um, their, their work ethic and the amount of music that they produced in these eight years to this day remains very, very remarkable, and especially, especially the quality um, and the standard that they kept up throughout those eight years. Uh, it's, it's virtually uh, unparalleled. You know, you look at the Beach Boys, the Stones, they're one, uh, definitely up there. Um, but the Beatles uh, are really seen as, as someone who, who rode the crest of a cultural wave. I wouldn't say that they pushed the culture so much as they were emblematic of the culture of the time and they uh, they rode that wave and um yeah so as we uh, as we mentioned the songwriting became much more intricate and um also the subject matter there were more s storytelling songs uh contemplative songs and and there were some political things also coming in as well uh we're going to play a song later on called eleanor rigby which is one of mccartney's most famous tunes which uh, is, a, is a very interesting and, and uh, melancholy song. Again, maybe not quite something that would be the sound of a traditional rock and roll band um, from the years before that. But this was something that, that they wanted to do, and it was the direction that the songwriting was taking them. So uh, I, I think it's a very interesting uh, example of how Lennon and McCartney at this point were growing as songwriters. So... Um, Around this time, most of the time, they would take uh, two parts of a song that they had written separately and collaborate to stitch it together. Uh, you'll see that on a song that's coming up called A Day in the Life. But uh, they were also just pushing each other to perfect their own songs. Uh, there's lines in Eleanor Rigby, and there's lines in uh, A Day in the Life as well, where Paul might have written the majority of the song or vice versa, and the other one steps in and says, oh, I don't like that line very much. 
uh, or you can do better than that. And it was that competitive spirit that really pushed the fire or, or yeah, propelled their career towards new heights, both creatively and uh, in terms of commercial success and, and growing the brand of the Beatles. So, um, yeah, a lot was changing around this time. They were becoming much more adept musicians. And uh, you notice around this time that um, a lot of their albums consist of less covers. It's much more original work. And as I mentioned before, uh, George Harrison is now getting songwriting credits. Like, for example, I Want to Tell You on uh, Revolver and uh, a couple of other songs, as, w as well as Tomorrow Never Knows, which is a complete Indian mystical romp uh, in 1966, which, like I said earlier, is completely unheard of around this time. So, um, yeah, I think it's a wonderful example. So uh, let's hear Eleanor Rigby off of the Revolver album. church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for all the lonely people where do they all come from all the lonely people where do they all belong father mackenzie Writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear No one comes near, look at him working Darling his socks in the night when there's nobody there What does he care, all the lonely people Where do they all come from? Wow, so that was Eleanor Rigby by The Beatles, uh, written by Lennon-McCartney, but this is primarily a McCartney uh, song. And uh, as you'll hear, there's a lot more instrumentation in there. You're hearing violins, uh, um, yeah, cellos, things of that nature, which, uh, as I mentioned, was not a part of the, of the mainstream rock and roll or pop music repertoire at the time. But uh, The Beatles around this time had started to see album crafting um, and, and songwriting as something more than just putting out these two and a half minute uh, songs to bop your head to, like, like was emblematic of the 50s. Um, and they had really progressed not only as, as writers, but also as musicians in the studio. And you had um, people around them in other roles 
who were also very underrepresented in in how how much they did to propel the Beatles to where they got. You had, um, for example, Jeff Emmerich, who recently passed away last year, I believe, or perhaps earlier in this year. Uh, he was the chief engineer uh, behind the uh, studio using the the t tape machines, which they recorded all of this on tape back in the day. And um, he was he was in charge of doing these revolutionary things with uh, tape looping. Uh, the Beatles on this uh, same album that Eleanor Rigby comes from, Revolver. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, on that Revolver album, they uh, were the first band to ever use a backwards guitar solo, where they George Harrison played a solo in uh, forwards, just regular, and they took it in the studio and they reversed it, uh, so uh, that the the solo essentially plays backwards. And it it might seem maybe simple today when we make music with our computers. And it's so easy to take a little snippet, put it in reverse, and throw it in. It's a it's a staple of modern day hip hop, and uh, and other genres. But at the time, this was this was completely cutting edge, and uh, they were they were inspiring a lot of young artists, and uh, and they were being inspired by a lot of other artists as well. I mentioned the creative competitiveness that was there between the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, uh, and the Beach Boys, um, but. It, it's often portrayed, I think, as an antagonistic relationship, but I don't think it really ever was that. I think these were creative people who uh, liked each other very much and were pushing each other towards something more, uh, something better, something uh, culturally significant and musically significant. Uh, although at the time, if you uh, look at interviews, it's, it's very funny. They would just say, we're having a laugh, you know, we're, we can't comment on what's going on culturally which may be them being uh, a little bit humble, but um, yeah, maybe, maybe it was something that came purely naturally out of them and they weren't aware in the moment of what they were creating. And I think that's often the case with revolutionary creative ideas is you know you're onto something, but you're not sure quite what until years after. Um, so yes, this is, this is a really fascinating time in not just the 60s, but the Beatles career and music in general, uh, the mainstream is changing very, very quickly. New recording techniques are coming in. And uh, after Eleanor Rigby later this same year, or excuse me, the next year in 1967, you had uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which is possibly their crowning achievement from an artistic perspective. And it was the first album to ever use a, uh, a Mellotron, which was the precursor to the synthesizer on songs like Strawberry Fields Forever. And uh, this was the Beatles really uh, their first outing at really making a cohesive work of art as an album. Revolver and Rubber Soul definitely had aspects of that, but they were, they were still rooted in that preconception of what a, a rock and roll album was. But Sgt. Peppers took things to the next level and uh, really showed the world what could be done. And uh, the next song that I'm going to play is a collaboration from Lennon-McCartney. And it's actually seen as the last real collaborative song that they wrote together. It's called A Day in the Life, and uh, we're going to hear that right now.
So that was a day in the life off of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And uh, I think this might be the biggest jump in, uh, in style and in, in subject matter, in, uh, in musical, in, in musicianship that we've seen uh, in today's uh, radio show. Um, so the first part was penned by Lennon, which he also sings. And then the second part after that first rising orchestral arrangement is uh, Paul, the little woke up, fell out of bed uh, segment. And uh, as I mentioned, this is 
considered one of the last true Lennon-McCartney, if not the last true Lennon-McCartney collaboration. Uh, the rest of them all had the the name Lennon-McCartney, but they were not necessarily a collaboration. That was just more of a pen name that they agreed to write any song written by one or the other under the name Lennon-McCartney because they were a, uh, they were a duo. And um, this song is really emblematic of, uh, of Sgt. Pepper's. It really represents it and uh, kind of sums it up. And um, there's a lot of varying moving pieces, different moving pieces. You have the orchestra, which plays from the lowest note to the highest note. And um, at this moment in time, the Beatles are really firmly in the driver's seat of, of everything. In the early years, um, George Martin, their producer, also very revolutionary figure in, in pushing their sound. Um, he had all the control in those early years, but later on the Beatles were, were kind of starting to input their own little suggestions and things like that. So it's a fascinating song, especially when you, when you read about how it was recorded with McCartney, essentially asking these uh, classically trained symphony musicians to, uh, to play from the lowest note to the highest note on their instrument at their own time. So he, he didn't give them any rhythm or anything. He said, within this 20 seconds, I need you to go from lowest to highest note. I don't care how you do it. But he wanted it to be a, a cacophony of sound, essentially. And um, that kind of stuff is fascinating. And, and virtually no other artists at the time had that kind of uh, money or access to experiment with those sorts of things. But um, at the time they were writing this magnum opus essentially um, although it's debatable whether it is their best album or not that's one of the Beatles biggest strengths is that they have so many great albums but um, at the time of this crowning achievement they also were starting to splinter apart and um, part of that you can see that on the next album the white album which is officially called um, it's a self-titled album simply called the Beatles but because of its stripped back plain white album cover uh, it was dubbed the White Album, and the uh, the album cover is really a, a metaphor for the sound, which is very stripped back, very uh, almost demo-like on some songs. There are a few high production points, but uh, besides that, it really is um, a lot of solo material, essentially, from the three Beatles. And here's where George Harrison really comes into his, uh, his form with While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is a wonderful song. But um, yeah, the White Album was stripped back solo material, and it was a lot of material. There are many, many songs on that album, including Blackbird, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which are very, very famous. Um, and these songs had a lot of cultural impact. Uh, even the, uh, if you look at Ozzy Osbourne, for example, with the song Helter Skelter, um, he said many times in interviews that he looks to that song as, uh, or he considers that song as his inspiration or one of his inspirations for the the heavy metal kind of hard rocking sound that he was looking for at the time. And um, also alternatively, maybe a less inspiring figure, but definitely a relevant figure in, in this time, uh, Charles Manson also uh, took a lot of messages from the White Album essentially and uh, at the, the crime scenes where him and his cult did their various things, they would leave cryptic messages uh, with Beatles lyrics in them. So the Beatles were soaked into popular culture around this time. And uh, they were all over the place doing rock and roll, doing psychedelic rock and um, all kinds of stuff. But perhaps the most bizarre song that we have from this time um, and one that, that really shocks 
uh, a person from this time that it could have come out of a year like 1966. It's really incredible. But uh, that song is called Helter Skelter, and we're going to play that now for you. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. So that was Helter Skelter off of the 1968 uh, The White Album. This uh, tune was primarily penned by uh, Paul McCartney 
and uh, it's it's a it's a heck of a song, if I may say so myself. Uh, very loud, grungy, and um, totally totally out of out of the time uh, at the time. Apparently, Paul McCartney had heard a uh, a Who song uh, from The Who, uh, either a song or an album. Which song it is is actually still up for contention, but he heard it described, Paul. As a uh, the the dirtiest grungiest rock and roll that he had uh, that they'd ever heard, and Paul read that in some music review thing and thought I can do something like that, and that became Helter Skelter. Um, so yeah, this is really the Beatles experimenting with uh, with different musical styles, and and Helter Skelter by no means defines the the sound of that album. There's a couple of heavy hitting songs like it. Uh, Why don't we do it in the road? Uh, maybe while my guitar gently weeps the fantastic George song uh, featuring Eric Clapton on guitar. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of change happening at this time, as, as is characteristic of the Beatles in, in all of their albums. But um, as this Lennon-McCartney partnership is kind of starting to go into hibernation, or yeah, they're, they're not writing together anymore, they're performing each other's songs together around this time, essentially. Uh, Helter Skelter was not really written by John uh, in any large part. And the same is true for, for John's songs like Sexy Sadie, uh, Happiness is a Warm Gun. Those are essentially Lennon solo tunes that the Beatles were playing. Um, but during this time, as I mentioned, George Harrison really came through as, as a unbelievable songwriter. Um, some of you may know his heartwarming tune, Here Comes the Sun. It's one of the Beatles' biggest songs, if not their biggest and it's not written by what's considered their their core duo. It's written by George, and um, yeah, you also have the beautiful, um, beautifully simplistic something, and these songs are uh, are monumental tracks. And so, not only do you have the man who wrote uh, who wrote Imagine, and uh, the man who wrote Let It Be, but you also have the man who wrote Here Comes the Sun and Something and While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and this is all in the same group. And there's a lot of competition, um, especially for George, who, despite being so talented, uh, was really seen as the younger member of the group. So, um, yeah, as a tribute to George, to his fantastic songwriting, we're going to play something right now. Bye. 
So that was something off of uh, Abbey Road, the Beatles' final album, which they recorded together. But not the last one released. The last one released was Let It Be in 1970. And here is where we reach the end, essentially, of the Beatles' career together. Um, these men were reaching their 30s, and after eight years together, they were different people than they were when they first started. They had wives, kids, solo careers, and most of all, maybe a bit of peace and quiet that they were after uh, around this time. So it was McCartney in 1970 who broke the group up officially, although they had been uh, splintered before that, to say the least. And um, yeah, there were a lot of, it was not a clean affair. There were a lot of disputes over management, drug use, uh, George's underutilization in the band. Um, and yeah, it, it didn't necessarily end very well either between Lennon and McCartney, who spent the better part of the 70s taking pot shots at each other, essentially. But um, regardless, the Beatles left a big impact on the, on the music industry, and I could talk for hours and hours about uh, their different songs and how influential they were. But uh, as kind of a testament to these dying days of the Beatles, um, I'm, we're going to play a song called Let It Be, which I'm sure many of you will know, which kind of encapsulates um, moving on and letting go of this, this beautiful era, but uh, also kind of a hopeful nod towards what they did. So here's Let It Be. in times of trouble Mother Mary comes to me Speaking words of wisdom Let it be And in my hour of darkness She is standing right in front of me Speaking words of wisdom Let it be Let it be Let it be Let it be Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. And when the broken-hearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer, let it be. For though they may be parted, there is still a chance that they will see.
heb ze het al gewerkt. Nee, ik heb het warmbraden gedaan, Jos. De Moorzoet Valkenberg, daar wil dan weer een commercial op opnemen. Moors auto's gaat in het Valkenburg. Ik ja. snap niet dat hij een reclame maakt. Dat, dat kent toch iedereen? Jo, en tot de Verio Fokwa garantieert, dat werd ook iedereen. En tot ze dat een leerauto kreeg, dat werd ook iedereen. En dat telefoonnummer, dat kent iedereen dreumen. 043 609 09 09. Moors Dat kent ook digitaal, Jos. Digitaal, Pierre. Digitaal. Ja. Oh. Met rederij Stiphout wordt een dagje erop uit een nautisch avontuur. Bijvoorbeeld met de vier sluizentocht. We varen door vier indrukwekkende sluizen in een prachtig landschap. Waaronder een oud kanaal uit 1825 en het Albertkanaal met 60 meter hoge rotswanden. Ook gezellig de boottocht naar Luik. We wandelen door de stad en op zondag natuurlijk over de Luikse markt. Tijdens beide tochten passeren we de sluis van Ternaaien met een indrukwekkend hoogteverschil van 15 meter. Ahoy en enjoy! Reserveer op stiphout.nl of bel 043. 351-5300. Elektroweerts, de elektrospecialist in de regio, is nu nog aantrekkelijker. Zowel op weertsonline.nl als in de winkel vindt u alles tegen concurrerende prijzen. Wist u dat wij nog steeds een eigen servicedienst hebben voor installatie en reparatie? Bezoek nu onze zaak aan het kruispunt of in winkelcentrum De Lijm in Heer. Of neem alvast een voorproefje op weertsonline.nl. Want kopen bij Weerts, plezier voor jaren. Reserveer nu voor onze overheerlijke vaderdagbrunch tussen 11 en 3. Van alles schet. Rijksweg 132, Bergen ter Pleit. Van alles schet, daar vind je het. Kijk voor meer info op vanalleschet.com. U luistert naar RTV Maastricht. 87.5 op de kabel, 107.5 in de ether. Dit is Ewald van Liemt met het radionieuws. Bij de Russische ambassade in Den Haag hebben nabestaanden van de ramp met de MH17... 298 lege stoelen neergezet voor ieder slachtoffer één. Ze protesteren daarmee tegen de houding van Rusland... dat niet open is over de betrokkenheid bij het neerhalen van het vliegtuig vijf jaar geleden. Vorig jaar concludeerde het internationale onderzoeksteam JIT... dat een raket van het Russische leger de MH17 uit de lucht had geschoten. Er komen voorlopig geen hogere Amerikaanse importtarieven op Mexicaanse goederen. President Trump dreigde daarmee omdat Mexico na zijn idee te weinig deed om de migrantenstroom af te remmen. Hij vindt dat er te veel vluchtelingen uit Centraal-Amerikaanse landen de Amerikaanse grens oversteken. Maar Mexico stuurt nu 6000 man van de Nationale Garde naar de zuidelijke grens met Guatemala... en betaalt dat door onder andere regeringshelikopters en het presidentiële vliegtuig te verkopen. Uit gegevens van het ministerie van Binnenlandse Zaken en Koninkrijksrelaties blijkt dat Nederlandse ambtenaren steeds vaker en luxer vliegen naar Bonaire, Sint-Eustatius en Saba. In vijf jaar tijd steeg het aantal vliegtickets naar die drie eilanden met ruim 50% naar zo'n 1500 stuks vorig jaar. Die toename van het aantal vliegtrips komt vooral door de nasleep van orkaan Irma in 2017 met veel schade op de Caribisch-Nederlandse eilanden. En in tegenstelling tot inwoners van 37 andere landen maken Nederlanders zich niet zo druk om online nepnieuws. Dat blijkt uit de Mediamonitor 2019 van het Commissariaat voor de Media en Reuters Digital News Report. Van de ondervraagden zegt 31% van de Nederlanders zich zorgen te maken over welk nieuws wel klopt en welk nieuws niet. Maar vorig jaar vertrouwde nog 59% blindelings op dat online nieuws en dit jaar is dat gezakt naar 53%. Kranten en televisie vindt men juist wel betrouwbaar. Het weer op veel plaatsen is het bewolkt, valt er regelmatig een